Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you uh, to the uh, auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. Date is Tuesday, February 21, 2012, and we are finishing a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and we give our gentleman who's, who's a real scholar on Mark Twain, we present at this time our friend Ira Fistel. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I understand what we're going to do is chapter 42 through the end of the book. So uh, just to review a little bit, in 41, uh, the boss and, the, and Sandy and the child are away in uh, France, and they remember that the ship that they sent to uh, get supplies hasn't come back yet. The Yankee decides after, uh, after waiting for two weeks he's going to go back to England and find out what happened. He lands at Canterbury on a Sunday and recognizes that uh, the interdict has begun. The interdict is a uh, ban by the church on the whole of the modern civilization that the Yankee has uh, created. And he realizes that the church has struck and that he had better get into um, disguise and go warily. Uh, he finds that there are no trains running to Camelot, so he has to walk there on foot for three days. And that brings us up to the beginning of Chapter 42. Correct. Well, he gets to Camelot all right, and it's silent, uh, completely dark. He walks in, and there he finds in his own uh, quarters Clarence, alone, drowned in melancholy, collie rather, and with an ancient rag lamp lighting things up with all the curtains drawn. And Clarence rushes to him and says, oh, it's worth a billion mil rays to look upon a live person again. He knew me as easily as if I hadn't been disguised at all. And that frightened me when we used to believe that. All right, says the Yankee, tell me what's going on. How did it all come about? And so Clarence narrates the story of what has happened. Well, there we go. No, he that sounded like an elephant. Yeah, really? <laughs> Hope he can get well, it. he says, if there hadn't been any Queen Guinevere, it wouldn't have come so soon. But it would have come anyway. It would have come on your own account by and by. By luck, it happened to come on the Queen's. And Sir Lancelot, he says, just so. Well, now, we know that from the very beginning of the book, Queen Guinevere cannot keep her eyes and hands off Sir Lancelot, no matter what the situation. The passion of the queen for Lancelot is um, known to everybody except King Arthur, who is such a good-hearted soul, he never wants to think evil of anybody, and he just doesn't see because he doesn't want to see. Well, that is one of the characteristics that Mark Twain is always criticizing. Willful blindness. Blindness not because you can't see what's in front of you, but because you don't want to see it. And this is exactly the same criticism that he would have of people in the South growing up with slavery and never noticing anything wrong with it. And in a sense, he's criticizing himself because that's exactly what he was like. As a young man, he grew up with slavery all around him. His father owned a slave, and he didn't know there was anything wrong with slavery because there was nobody to tell him there was anything wrong with it. Everybody was telling him it was, it was the right way to live. And so uh, he was not willfully blind, but blind because he didn't know any better. And a lot of other people in the society who could have known better and should have known better were blind because they didn't want to know better. And this is, uh, this is um, 
uh, take off on the old line, there's nobody as blind as those who don't, do not want to see. And that is exactly what uh, Quinn is criticizing here. Okay, so what happened? Well, the king's heart is the only heart capable of not of thinking evil of a friend. Well, the king of May had gone on still happy and unsuspecting to the end of his days. But for one of your own modern improvements, the stock board, the stock exchange. Okay, what happened on the stock exchange? Now, remember Sir Lancelot on his way to the stock market to make a killing, uh, and he stops and nurses the child instead. That was in Chapter 40. All right, well, when you were left, three miles of the London, Canterbury, and Dover Railway was ready for the rails and ripe for manipulation in the stock market. It was wildcat, and everybody knew it. The stock was for sale at a giveaway price. What does Lancelot do but... Yes, it interrupts the Yankee. I know what he did. He quickly he threw all the stock for a song. And then he bought about twice as much more deliverable about call. And he was about to call when I left. Okay, now then what has Lancelot done? He's cornered the market in the stock. And he has then bought stock to be delivered later, right? Well, he's got all the stock. And when the uh, time comes for the uh, others to have to deliver it, they can't get the stock to deliver. This is what's known as cornering the market. He got a corner on the market. Uh, the corner means that the other party is under contract to give him the stock, and they haven't got it to give. And so they have to settle with him. And he can squeeze them as hard as he wants because he's got the law on his side, and there is nothing that anybody else can do. They, uh, they, can, they cannot uh, not deliver the stock. They're under contract to do it. And if they don't deliver it, he can sue them for everything they're worth. Um, so they're in a corner, and that's why it's called a corner on the market. All right, they were laughing their sleeves over their smartness in selling stock to it 15 and 16 that wasn't worth 10. Well, when they laughed long enough on that side of their mouths, they rested up that side and shifted the laugh to the other side. And then they had to compromise, they were forced to compromise because they have to deliver stock or pay for it. They compromised with the Invincible at 283. Right? The stock wasn't worth $10 a share the way they thought. They have to pay him $283 a share. Now, you can figure out for yourself what percentage profit that is. Launcelot is absolutely skidding them alive. And they know it, and there's nothing at all they can do about it. They deserved it. Anyway, the whole kingdom rejoiced. Well, among the flayed were the two nephews of King Arthur, Sir Agravaine and Sir Mordred. End of the first act, says Clarence in his narration. Okay. Second act, an apartment in Carlisle Castle where the court had gone hunting. The whole tribe of the king's nephews were there, and Mordred and Agravaine proposed to call the guileless Arthur's attention to Guinevere and Launcelot and their uh, affair. Sir Gawain, Sir Gareth, and Sir Gaheris will have nothing to do with it. A dispute ensues, ensues rather, loud talk, and in the middle of it, enter the king. And Mordred and Agravaine spraying their devastating tail on him. 
Lancelot has a set for him, and Lancelot walks into it. He made it sufficiently uncomfortable for the ambushed witnesses, Mordred, Agravain, and twelve knights of lesser Reich, and he killed them all except Mordred. But that didn't straighten out matters between Lancelot and the king, and it didn't. The Yankee says, oh dear, there's only one thing that could result, war with the knights of the realm divided into the king's party and a Lancelot's party. And that is exactly what happened. The king then sent the queen to the stake, proposing to purify her with fire. Lancelot and his knights rescued her, and in doing so, slayed some more knights of our friends, uh, including a couple of uh, baseball players, <laughs> and then Gaheris and Gareth both. Incredible. Their love for Lancelot was indestructible. Well, it was an accident. They were simply onlookers, says Clarence. They were unarmed and just merely there to witness the queen's punishment. And Lancelot just killed anybody who came in the way of his blind fury, and he killed them without even knowing who they were, not even recognizing them. And then Clarence uh, shows a photograph that they took. The figures nearest the queen are Lancelot with his sword up and Gareth grasping his last breath. You can catch the agony in the queen's face through the curling smoke. It's a rattling battle picture. Boy, is it. <laughs> Well, the rest of the tale was just war, pure and simple. Lancelot retreated to Joyous Guard, his castle and town, and gathered there a lot of knights. The king with a great host went there, and there was desperate fighting for several days. The plain around was all paved with corpses and cast iron. The church then patched up a peace between Arthur and Lancelot, and the queen, and everybody except Gawain, who was bitter about the slaying of his brothers and notified Lancelot who looked to be attacked. So Lancelot went to his Duchy of Guienne, wherever that is, and Gawain followed, and he got Arthur to go with him. Arthur left the kingdom in the hands of Sir Mordred. Uh-oh. Mordred is the one who is out to get the king anyway. And Sir Mordred set himself at work to make the kingship permanent. He was going to marry Guinevere as a first move, but she fled and shut herself up in the Tower of London. Mordred attacked, and at this point, and here's something that's not really explained in the text, but it's very important. The Archbishop of Canterbury dropped down on him with the interdict, right? Now, what was the reason for this? What happened? The Archbishop of Canterbury was looking for an opportunity to seize control of the country for the church, and this gave him the opportunity to do it. Now, the real target of the Archbishop of Canterbury isn't really Mordred. Who's the real target? Who are they trying to displace and take over the country? Well, I would say it's either the boss or King Arthur. Well, of course, it's the boss under King yeah. Arthur. Uh, the, the church bides its time, and when the war between Arthur and Lancelot heats up uh, and Mordred makes his attack, the church sees the opportunity to enforce the interdict. And they name Mordred, but they also name the Yankee. It doesn't say so here, but it does a little bit later. Sir Gawain uh, appeared to Arthur in a dream and warned him to not fight for a month. But there was an accident. Arthur gave an order that if a sword was raised during consultation over the treaty with Mordred, fall in. He had no confidence in Mordred. And Mordred gave a similar order to his people. Well, by and by a snake, an adder, bit the heel of a knight, and the knight forgot all about the order and slashed at the snake with his sword. And that set the two armies hitting each other. 
So that's where the, uh, the fight resumes. And Arthur is personally involved in the fight. And the correspondent describes what happened. Arthur was looking for Mordred. He was going to, he wanted to kill Mordred, the traitor, that had caused all this mischief. And then Arthur learned where Mordred leaned on his sword among a great heap of dead men. Give me my spear, said Arthur. I have seen the traitor, and let him be, says Sir Lucan. He's unhappy, and if he passed this unhappy day, you'll be right and well revenged on him. He's going to kill himself anyway. <laughs> Arthur is advised, remember what Gawain told you, don't fight for a month? You have already won the field. We are three on live, and Mordred is none on live. And if you leave off now, this wicked day of destiny is past. But Arthur can't leave well enough alone. He takes the spear and runs toward Mordred, crying, Traitor, now is thy death day come. And when Mordred heard Arthur, he ran upon him with his sword in his hand, and Arthur hit uh, Mordred under the shield with a spear that went through the body more than a fathom. A fathom is six feet, so uh, the whole spear went through the body. Hmm. And when Mordred felt that he had his death wound, he thrust himself with all the might he had up to the butt of King Arthur's spear, and so came close enough to hit Arthur with his sword in both his hands on the side of the head. And Mordred then fell dead to the earth, and Arthur fell in a swoon to the earth, and then he died. That's what happens to uh, Arthur. Okay, Clarence goes on. What about the queen, Clarence? She's a nun in Almsbury. What changes in such a short time? It's inconceivable. What next? I can tell you what's next. Well, stake our lives and stand by them. What do you mean by that? The church is master now. The interdict included you with Mordred. So we didn't know that uh, a couple pages ago. It is not to be removed while you remain alive. The church has gathered all the knights that are left alive, and as soon as you are discovered, we shall have them attacking us. Huh, what are we worried about, says the Yankee. With all our deadly scientific war material, our hosts are trained. Save your breath, says Clarence. We haven't 60 faithful left. What are you saying? Our schools, our colleges, our workshops are... When those nights come, says Clarence. What does Clarence mean, remember? It means bright, cool-headed, smart. Those establishments will empty themselves and go over to the enemy. Did you think you had educated the superstition out of these people? I certainly did think it, said the Yankee. Well, then you may unthink it. They stood every strain easily until the interdict. Since then, they merely put on a bold outside. At heart, they're quaking. Make up your mind to it. When the armies come, the mask will fall. Clarence, in other words, has a clearer understanding and a clearer sight than the Yankee does. Now, what is happening in this chapter? Clarence is taking over the narration of the story. In the next chapter, he actually takes over the writing of the end of the manuscript. Clarence takes over the, the book and in the last three chapters, the same thing that happened in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Remember what happens at The Adventures of Tom Sawyer? Huckleberry Finn emerges in the last few chapters as the, a leading character. Huck Finn starts as uh, just a throw-in. End of the book, 
he is taking over the story. He takes he becomes the, the central actor in saving the widow Douglas from uh, Injun Joe. Yeah, yeah, Injun Joe. Twain is repeating himself here, in the sense that he has introduced a character uh, offhandedly. Uh, and not significant with all appearances at the beginning of the book, who by the end of the book becomes the true hero. Is the Yankee the hero of the story? No. Well, is he oh. the center of the story, but is he heroic in any way? Is he? Does he have vision? Does he have poetry? Does he have understanding? He doesn't have any of those things. It's Clarence who emerges as the real hero of the, the, the story. And remember, in the last chapter, the Yankee is proposing a republic. And he, did we do this last week about last time about hankering, the word hankering? I believe we did. You may have, but I missed it. Well, uh, the point is the, the, what the, the word hankering is a pun on the Yankee's name, Hank. Hank. And, and a hankering uh, is what he had. Well, actually, he had a hankering to be the boss, to be, uh, you know, to be the ruler. Gotcha. Wonderful use of the, of the word hankering as a pun on Hank. <laughs> All right. So anyway, here's the the Yankee had had this dream. Clarence knows that it's never going to happen. Clarence understands the people far better than the Yankee does. In fact, the Yankee is is defeated totally by the fact that he doesn't understand what he's doing or what he's trying to do. He doesn't understand that he's, it's not easy or maybe even possible to change human nature, to change what people are raised with. And this is one of Twain's leading themes also. Uh, we've seen many attempts in history by a regime to change the people. Uh, most recently, you might remember, Mao Zedong tried it with the great leap forward. And it didn't work for Mao Zedong. It hasn't worked for uh, all the social reformers of the 19th century in this country who established uh, societies where there, were, where there was no sex, where there was no marriage, where there was no uh, a total equality in, uh, in goods and services, uh, where all these social experiments, and they all failed because people don't change their nature easily. The Yankees' whole scheme rests on his assumption that he can change the people of Arthurian England. And he fails, of course, to do that. Now, what does that bring you to in the terms of the satire? What, is, what society is this book really about? Is it really about 6th century England? No. King Arthur's, I mean, Chester A. Arthur's era, the Gilded Age. Of course. Age. Of course. Of course. And what Twain is saying is that all the social reforms and uh, the passage of the, uh, the 14th Amendment yeah. and um, all the good things that uh, were started, the Freedmen's Bureau, for example, uh, all, the, all the legislation is not going to work because people aren't trying to change. And we have not really advanced any from the 6th century in other than terms of technology. Technology has advanced, but the what might be called the underlying morality or ethics of man have not changed. That prepares us for what's coming in the next chapter. You'll see that in a minute. All right.
You may unthink it, says Clarence. They will turn our science against us. We're lost. No, they won't, said Clarence. Why? Well, because I had a handful of faith will have blocked that game. I'll tell you what I've done and what moved me to it. Smart as you are, the church was smarter. It was the church that sent you cruising through her servants, the doctors. <laughs> and now the Yankee discovers another thing that he never dreamed of. He did not realize the patience and cunning of the church. He was afraid of the church from the beginning, but he never did anything that, uh, or sees anything to, to make him realize that the church is still uh, waiting its time, and now the time has come. It's the truth. I know it. Every officer of your ship was the church's picked servant. Every man of the crew was. Oh, come. He's still scoffing. It's just as I tell you, said Clarence. I didn't find out these things at once, but I found them out finally. Did you send me verbal information by the commander of the ship to the effect that you were going to leave Cadiz? Cadiz? I haven't been to Cadiz at all. <laughs> going to leave Cadiz and cruise in distant seas indefinitely? Did you send me that word? Of course not. I would have written, wouldn't I? Yes, said Clarence. Naturally, I was troubled and suspicious, and when the commander sailed again, I shipped a spy with him. I haven't heard of vessel or spy since. I gave myself two weeks to hear from you in, and then I resolved to send a ship to Cadiz. And then there was a reason why I didn't. Why was that? The Navy had suddenly and mysteriously disappeared. The railway and the telephone and the telephone service ended. The men all deserted. The poles were cut down, and the church laid a ban on the electric light. I had to be up and doing straight off. Your life was safe. Nobody in these kingdoms but Merlin would venture to touch such a magician as you without 10,000 men at his back. And I had nothing to think about but how to put preparations in the best trim against your coming and to prepare for your coming. I felt safe myself. Nobody was anxious to touch a pet of yours, so this is what I did. From our various works, I selected all the boys whose faithfulness under whatever pressure I could swear to. There were 52 of them, none younger than 14 and none above 17. Why did you select boys? Oh, because they weren't raised in the atmosphere of superstition and reared in it. So, they've been under our training for seven to ten years. They've never acquainted with the church's terrors. As a next move, I paid a private visit to the old cave of Merlin's. Not the small one, the big one. Yeah, the one where we secretly established our first great electric plant when I was projecting a miracle. And yes, just so, and as the miracle hadn't become necessary there, I thought it might be a good idea to utilize the power plant now. Okay, so here's Clarence's plan. He provisions the place for a siege, and he sets up uh, all the, the wire connections to all the uh, factories and everything, then ran them into the cave, connected the wire with the cave. And we laid it underground, and it was finished in a couple of hours or so, and now we don't have to leave our fortress when we want to blow up our civilization. Next, we build a wire fence. Why a wire fence? Because it can be electrified. And what uh, Clarence does is to build a circle of fences uh, around the cave and electrify them all so that uh, the fences can be charged with a high-powered current and it will kill anybody who touches the with open wires. Next step, Gatling guns. You know what a Gatling gun is? It's a machine gun. 
Now, the, the machine gun had been developed in the United States during the Civil War and used toward the end of the Civil War. And, of course, Mark Twain was very much aware of uh, what a um, machine gun could do. And he has clearance set up a platform six feet high, a battery of 13 Gatling guns, and plenty of ammunition. They command every approach. And when the church's knights arrive, there's going to be music. A wire fence and a Gatling above the precipice over the cave so they can't drop rocks on them. Then the next thing, glass cylinder dynamite torpedoes. Now, we would call them landmines. Torpedoes today means a uh, naval weapon that is self-powered and carries a charge and, and it goes underwater and hits a ship. But that's not what the word torpedo meant in the 19th century. A torpedo was a, an explosive device that could be buried or you know, tied to a rope or whatever. And Clarence makes these land torpedoes and buries them around in a sand belt. Okay, and it's an innocent-looking garden, but you stud a man holding it once and you'll see. Did you test the torpedoes? Well, I was going to, but, oh, it's an immense oversight not to apply a test. Yes, yes, I know, but they work. I laid a few in the public road behind our lines, and they've been tested. Oh, that also the case. Who did it? A church committee. They came to command us to make submission. You see, they didn't really come to test the torpedoes. That was merely an incident. And here's another of the plane's wonderful uh, puns. Did the committee make a report? Oh, yes, they made one. You could have heard it a mile away. <laughs> Unanimous? That was the nature of it. In other words, all the members of the, of the committee uh, the, uh, to uh, get them to submit were blown up. Mark Twain could be a, could pun with the best when he wanted to. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do this in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn at all, because those characters are not the kind of characters who might pun. But with the Yankee and Clarence, he uses puns. One of the ways in which this book's uh, handling of language is great, but different from the way it's handled in uh, the uh, Mississippi Valley books because these people are not Mississippi Valley people. They talk differently, uh, and they think differently. And in this book, you find a lot of puns. You don't find them in the uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. All right, then the Yankee says, now it's time to strike. I take the offensive. I always like the offensive, he says. Defensive isn't in my line, and offensive is. That is when I hold a fair hand. Two-thirds as good as an enemy. (laughs) We'll rise up and strike. We'll issue the proclamation of a republic. Sign it the boss and dated it from Maroon's cave. Well, it tells us where they are and invites them to call on us right away. That's the idea. We strike by the proclamation and then it's their innings using baseball terminology. Now, have the thing set up and printed and posted right off and give the order. If you've got a group of uh, bicycles handy at the foot of the hills, we'll go to Merwin's cave. I'll be ready in 10 minutes. What a cyclone there's going to be tomorrow when this piece of paper gets to work. Well, it's a pleasant old place this is. I wonder if we'll ever see it again, but never mind about that. So chapter 42 describes how the interdict happened and what Clarence has planned to counter the interdict. And this uh, chapter might be broken down into sections. The first section is Clarence telling the story of uh, the King's party versus the Lothlet party 
up to the point of the uh, death of uh, Arthur. And the Archbishop of Canterbury strikes. The second part of the chapter is Clarence's plans, the defensive. And the third part is the Yankees taking the offensive, the challenge uh, with a proclamation. See how the uh, structure is, elucidates the chapter? If you recognize the structure, you see more clearly what the author is getting at. Uh, I can't repeat often enough how important it is to read for the structure of anything you read, anything you read, whether it's a, a business report or a school book or a novel, um, anything you read, anything you watch, anything you see in the movies, for example, any piece of music you listen to, all human creations that are, are worthwhile have structure which holds the piece together and at the same time uh, analyzing the structure gives you the real story of what the author is trying to do or the creator is trying to do. It's, it's true in a painting. Paintings have structures. A work of art has a it all has structures. Building has a structure. Uh, a bridge has a structure. It's one of the most easiest, one of the most easy examples to see. There's a structure of a bridge. But structure, understanding structure and reading for structure, is the key, the most important single thing I could teach you. Uh, it's the most important thing I ever learned, and I learned it when I was, I guess, 18 years old. 17 or 18 years old, my first year at the University of Chicago, where they teach structure. I don't know that anybody else teaches it. I've never no. seen it taught by anybody else. But I'm sure somebody must. However, uh, I did get to, to learn it. And it was because I was able to do that that I was able to sail through college and law school and graduate school, never had to work more than three hours a day at anything. And I could read something once or twice and have a clear understanding of what it was so that I wouldn't forget it. And you, when, I do, when I do the, a book to this day, the first thing I look at is what's the structure of each chapter, what's the structure of the book as a whole, how do the chapters fall on each other or follow each other. Uh, it's the key to understanding. And it takes a little doing, it takes a little effort to learn to do it. But once you've got it, and it is not impossible to learn, it's not that hard. Once you've got it, you will find your reading comprehension doubles or triples or quadruples, and your retention increases. One of the reasons I wrote the, the whole Bart Twain book, and one of, the, one of the characteristics of it is, it is in part a lesson in how to read a book. Um, structure. I talked so much about structure in the Huckleberry Finn section, the Tom Sawyer section, and now this. All right, Chapter 43, The Battle of the Sand Belt. Can I ask a question before we move on? Sure, sure. Um, I'm just curious. I don't remember how Arthur died in the classic uh, Knights of the Round Table. Was it the same manner that he no, died? No, in... Arthur doesn't actually die. He disappears into the mists. Okay, okay. I couldn't if I, remember. If I, recall, if I recall correctly, that's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he returns to Avalon, and nobody knows where he's gone. But he disappears into the mist. Okay. It's interesting that Twain chose to give him a different death. The whole premise of the book is that uh, the uh, Ross is going to set up his republic. The republic. And he can't do that if Arthur's alive. 
Right. Chapter 43, The Battle of the Sandbelt. This is the last chapter that the Yankee actually writes. In Merlin's cave, Clarence and I and 52 fright, bright, fresh, well-educated, clean-minded British boys. He blows up the, the uh, factories and everything after a week of waiting. And during the first three days, he finished turning his old diary into this narrative form and only required a chapter or two to bring it down to date. I took up writing letters to my wife. And he kept up writing them, even though I couldn't do anything with the letters after I'd written them. But it put in the time, it was almost like talking. It was almost as if I was saying, Sandy, if you and Hello Central were here in this cave instead of only your photographs, what good times we could have. And he thinks about the baby and he says it was almost like having us all together again. He sends spies out every night to get news and he finds out that the knights and the priests were writing. Uh, this being the church's war, it was like a crusade. All the nobilities, big and little, were on their way and all the gentry. We should thin out this folk to such a degree that the people would have nothing to do but just step up to the front with their Republican. Ah, what a donkey. He, and he watches his 52 boys, and he uh, realizes they are right. They had to speak. They could feel the pressure. But all England is marching against us. Consider, sir, reflect. These people are our people, are bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. Flesh, we love them. Don't ask us to destroy our nation. Well, I saw that I had foreseen this coming, and I knew that I could handle it. Your hearts are in the right place. You've thought the worthy thought. You've done the worthy thing. You are English boys, and you will keep that name unbesmirched. Give yourselves no further concern that your minds be at peace. Consider this, while all England is, is marching against us, who's in the van? Who, by the commonest rules of war, will march in front? And, of course, it'll be the knights, uh, the mounted host. And there are 30,000 of them, says the Yankee. Now, none but they will ever strike the sand belt. None but the nobles and gentry are knights, and none but these will remain to dance to our music after that episode. It is absolutely true that we shall have to fight nobody but these 30,000 knights. Now, speak, and shall be as you decide. Do we avoid the battle? No, the shot was unanimous and hearty. Are you afraid of those 30,000 knights? And they laughed. Oh, they were a darling 52, as pretty as girls, too. I was ready for the enemy now. The big day arrived on time early. Sentry said there's a faint sound. He thought to be military music. Well, he's, he mans the battery with clearance and command, and pretty soon they see the banners coming, flying in the sun. The sun struck the sea of armor and set it all aflash. It was a fine sea. I'd never seen anything to beat it. At last we could make out details, all the front ranks, no telling how many acres deep were horsemen, plumed knights in armor. Suddenly we heard the blare of trumpets, the slow walk burst into a gallop. Uh, it was wonderful to see. Down swept that vast horseshoe wave and approached the sand belt. My breath stood still. Nearer, nearer, the strip of green turf beneath the yellow belt grew narrower and narrower, became mere ribbons in front of the horses, and then disappeared under their hoofs. Great Scott! The whole front of that host shot into the sky with a thunder crash and became a whirling tempest of rags and fragments. And along the ground lay a thick wall of smoke that hid what was left of that multitude from our sight. Great Scott, 
You notice the, his expression? He uses it fairly often. Uh, you cannot tell me that Mark Twain did this by accident. Who was his favorite target among uh, all the romantic authors? Sir uh, Walter with, Scott. Ivanhoe, the guy. What is, yeah, Sir I, Walter Scott. Walter Scott. He even in, uh, in Life on the Mississippi, he even blames Sir Walter Scott for the Civil War indirectly because the people of the South were so uh, hung up on reading the romances of Walter Scott that they refused to see each other in their society as they really were. They imagined themselves to be something they weren't. So when he says Great Scott, there's got to be a terrific irony here. Time for you know, the second step was... in the plan of campaign. I touched a button and shook the bones of England loose from her spine. All our noble civilization factories went up in the air and disappeared from the earth. It was a pity, but it was necessary. We couldn't afford to let the enemy turn our weapons against us. And now they sat there and waited until the wall of smoke went up. And what they saw, no living creature was in sight. In additions had been made to our defenses. The dynamite had dug a ditch more than 100 feet wide all around us and cast up an embankment 25 feet high on both borders of it. As to the destruction of life, it was amazing. Moreover, it was beyond estimate. Of course, we couldn't count the dead because they did not exist as individuals, but merely as homogeneous protoplasm with alloys of iron and buttons. How horrifying do you, can you get? Nothing, nothing like this had ever been written in the history of the world, I think, before this book. No life was in sight, but necessarily there may have been some wounded in the rear ranks who were carried there under the cover of the wall of smoke. And there would be sickness among others, there always is, but there would be no reinforcements. This was the last stand of the chivalry of England, and it was all that there was left of the order after the recent annihilating wars. So I felt quite safe in believing that the utmost force that could be the future we brought against us would be small. And I issued a proclamation to my army. And here it is. The uh, planets shall continue to move in their order, orbits. The battle of the sand belt will not perish out of the memories of men. Sound like Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address mm -hmm. a little bit? Now, he does something else. He sends an engineer and 40 men to a point just beyond our lines in the south to turn a mountain brook that was there and bring it within our lines and under our command, arranging it in such a way that I could make an instant use of it in an emergency. The 40 men were divided into two shifts of 20 each and were to leave each other every two hours, and in 10 hours the work was done. In other words, he now has the stream where he can run it through the moat that was created by the uh, explosion in the sand belt. He has this discussion with Clarence as to whether they would do something else, whether they would attack again. I think you're right, said Clarence. It's the obvious thing for them to try. It's dreadful, Clarence. It seems like an awful pity. Well, I couldn't get any peace of mind for thinking and worrying, so at last, to quiet my conscience, I framed a message to the knights. To the honorable, the commander of the insurgent chivalry, you fight in vain, etc., 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 we offer you this chance, and it is your last. Throw down your arms, surrender to the Republic, and all will be forgiven, says the boss. I read it to Clarence, and I said it. I proposed to send it by a flag of truce. Clarence laughed a sarcastic laugh he was born with and said, Somehow it seems impossible for you to ever fully realize what these abilities are. Let's save a little time and trouble. Consider me to be the commander of the Knights Yonder, and you're the flag of truce. Deliver me your message, and I'll give you the answer. I went along with the idea. I came forward under an imaginary guard of soldiers, produced my paper, and read it through. 
For answer, Clarence struck the paper out of my hand, pursed up a scornful lip, and said with lofty disdain, Dismember me this animal and return him in a basket to the baseborn knave who sent him. Other answer I have none. How empty is theory in the presence of fact. And this was just fact and nothing else. It was the thing that would have happened. There was no getting around it. I tore up the paper and granted my mistimed sentimentalities a permanent rest. Now it becomes night, and uh, they're waiting for some action, and Clarence broke off and said, what was that? That thing yonder, where? There, behind a little piece of dark something against the second fence. I gazed, and he gazed, and I said, could it be a man, Clarence? Oh, I don't think so. If you notice, it looks, well, it is a man leaning on the fence, and let's go see. Yes, it was a man, a dim, great figure in armor, standing erect with both hands on the upper wire, and, of course, there was a smell of burning flesh. Poor fellow, dead as a doornail, and never knew what hurt him. He stood there like a statue, no motion about him except that his plumes swished about a little in the night wind. We rose up and looked through the bars of his visor, but we couldn't make out whether we knew him or not. The features were too dim and shadowed. We heard muffled sounds approaching, and we sank to the ground where we were. We made out another night, vaguely. He was coming up stealthily and feeling his way. He was near enough now for us to see him put out a hand and find an upper wire and bend and step under it and over the lower one. And now he arrived at the first night and started slightly when he discovered him. He stood for a moment, no doubt wondering why the other one didn't move. And then he said, Why dreamest thou here, good servant? And then he laid his hand on the corpse's shoulder and just uttered a little soft moan and sunk down dead. Killed by a dead man, you see. Killed by a dead friend, in fact. There was something awful about it. Well, of course, this results ultimately in the charge of the knights against the wires, and all of them are struck down. At one time, uh, a tremendous roar, you could hear this one, the, the noise that when 10,000 men died with the current going through all the fences. And then he turns on electric lights and he sees we were enclosed in three walls of dead men. And then 11, well, 11,000, I said 10,000, 11,000 men, the death pang of 11,000 men. And then time for the last act of the tragedy. The rest of the enemy, perhaps 10,000 strong, were between us and the encircling ditch, pressing forward to the assault. We had them all past hope. Time for the last act. I fired three revolver shots, which meant turn on the water. There was a sudden rush and roar, and in a minute the mountain brook was raging through the big ditch and creating a river 100 feet wide and 25 feet deep. Open fire, men. Stand to your guns. Open fire. And the 13 Gatlings began to vomit death into the fated 10,000. They broke, faced around, and swept towards the ditch, and a full fourth part of their force never reached the top of the lofty embankment. Three-fourths of it reached it and plunged over, to meet death by drowning. Within ten short minutes after we opened fire, armed resistance was totally annihilated, and we 54 were masters of England. 25,000 men lay dead around us. The Yankees' great triumph, right? But how treacherous is fortune? In a little while, say an hour, happened a thing by my own fault which, but I have no heart to write that. Let the record end here. The Yankees' great triumph. 25,000 dead men surround the, uh, the cave. Now, 
what does this remind you of the Gatling guns and the explosives and the electric fences and the water, the flooding of the, the water? Well, I was thinking of the Civil War when you were describing the knights standing there because some people saw the South as, you know, somewhat noble. And, uh-huh. uh, well, the Southerners saw themselves archaic. that way, yeah. They saw themselves they that way. saw themselves that way. That's a nice but, observation. Uh, this kind of mass killing did really begin in the American Civil War. But what was coming in the future? First World War, even, you know. Of course. Oh, that was in the future. War. Coming, yeah. The trench warfare on the Western Front were for four years. Oh, yeah. The two armies, uh, three armies, the French, the British, and the Germans, uh, assaulted each other hopelessly, running out of the trenches and getting shot down wholesale, uh, getting mm-hmm. gassed. Instead of electric fences, it was gassed, but so what's the difference? In other words, this is a picture of 20th century warfare on the Western Front, written 25 years before World War I broke out. Wow. Mark Twain was the most visionary of 19th century writers in that he saw the impact of technology on warfare in the 20th century. He saw it as nobody else saw it. Now, in many ways, this is only one way, but in many ways, Mark Twain is the most contemporary of all 19th century novelists. The issues that he took up are issues that are with us today. And it all comes down basically to the fact that we have improved our technology to the point where we can now kill wholesale in ways that the, that uh, Twain's own century never even <clears throat> imagined. And yet, we have not changed a bit in our approach towards uh, the way people live. We still think of solving everything by fighting. The re- what's, the revolution, what's the resolution to anything? Well, if you can't get them to go along with what you want, you kill them. Oh. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what we do now. We're talking about it in the case of uh, uh, Israel and Iran, whether Israel mm. should uh, try to uh, bomb Iran's nuclear power before Iran bombs them. Yeah. We, man has not changed. The only thing that's changed is the tools. In that's prehistoric times, people fought with rocks. Today, they fight with atomic bombs and laser weapons and all that, but they still have the same reaction. They still fight. Hmm. The nature of man hasn't changed. Only the means have improved to the point now where we are capable of wholesale slaughter. In the 20th century, at least 60 million people were, were killed in wars. And how many others, who knows? But at least 60 million. Uh, that's a that's probably a small minority of the total figure. What about the 21st century? Anybody want to get scared? Read Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court and project what he's talking about here. Oh, my. Uh, so that's why I say that of all 19th century novelists, Mark Twain was the most visionary and the most far-seeing and the most thoughtful and the, of greatest impact to us today. Because what he's writing about, what he was writing about in 1889, is even more true today than it was in his own time. Okay, let's let's go on to the chapter 44. Clarence has taken over the vision in the book in the last two chapters, and now he takes over the narration itself. I, Clarence, must write it for him. He proposed that we two go out and see if we could help any uh, to the wounded. I was against the project. 
I said that if there were many, we couldn't do anything for them, and it would be not wise to trust ourselves among them anyway. But you couldn't turn him off from his purpose once formed, so we shut off the electric current and climbed over the enclosing ramparts of dead knights and moved out into the field. The first wounded man who appealed for help was sitting with his back against the dead comrade, and when the boss bent over him and spoke to him, the man recognized him and stabbed him. The knight was Sir Melagrawens, as I found out by tearing off his helmet. He will not ask for help anymore. Clarence finished him. We carried the boss to the cave and gave his wound, which was not serious, the best care we could. In this service, we had the help of Merlin, but we did not know it. He was disguised as a woman and appeared to be a simple old peasant good wife. With a brown-stained face and smooth-shaven, he had appeared a few days after the boss was hurt and offered to cook for us, saying that her people had gone off to certain new camps and she was starving. The boss had been getting along very well and amused himself with finishing up his record, and we were glad to have this woman, for we were short-handed. We were in a trap, you see, a trap of our own making. And here's the ultimate irony. If we stayed where we were, the dead would kill us. If we moved out of our defenses, we were no longer invulnerable. We had conquered. In turn, we were conquered. The boss recognized this. We all recognized it. If we could go to one of those new camps and patch up some terms with the enemy, yes, but the boss couldn't go, and neither could I, for I was among the first that were made sick by the poisonous air bred by those 25,000 dead. Others were taken on, and still others. Tomorrow? Well, tomorrow is here, and with it the end. About midnight I awoke and saw that hag making curious passes in the air above the boss's head and face. I wondered what it meant. Everyone but the dynamo watch was steeped in sleep. There was no sound. The woman ceased her mysterious foolery and started tiptoeing towards the door. I called out, Stop! What have you been doing? She halted and said with an accent of malicious satisfaction, You are conquerors. Ye are conquered. These others are perishing. You also. Ye shall all die in this place, everyone except him. He sleepeth now and shall sleep thirteen centuries. I am Merlin. Mm-hmm. Does anybody remember what Merlin's only power is? Merlin is the magician who's supposedly powerful. But there's only one thing he can do in the whole book, and the only one thing he does do. What's the only thing he does successfully? He can put people to sleep. Merlin puts people to sleep with his long story early in the book, and he ends the book by putting the boss to sleep. His real power is only one thing, the power to put people to sleep. Then such a delirium of silly laughter overtook him that he reeled about like a drunken man and presently fetched up against one of our wires. His mouth is spread open yet. He's apparently is still laughing. I suppose the face will retain that petrified laugh until the corpse turns to dust. Mm-hmm. The last paragraph. The boss has never stirred, sleeps like a stone. If he does not wake today, we shall understand what kind of sleep it is, and his body will be borne to a place in one of the remote recesses of the cave where none will ever find it desecrated. As for the rest of us, well, it's agreed that if any of us ever escapes alive from this place, he will write the fact here and loyally hide this manuscript with the boss, our good dear chief, whose property it is, be he alive or dead. End of the manuscript. Now, comes the, the finish. Remember we talked at the very beginning about how this book is layered in 
there are layers and layers of the narration. The book is not uh, not narrated by Mark Twain. It's narrated by the Connecticut Yankee, and at the end by Clarence. All right. Now these are characters created by Mark Twain, but they're not Mark Twain the author. Now we have a postscript written as by Mark Twain. But who is Mark Twain? Mark Twain was, and yet at the same time was not, Samuel Clemens. So you have at least three layers in this narration. A totally unique thing. I've never seen it before and never after. He never did it again. But he has distanced his personality as Samuel Clemens from the narration of the story not only with his own persona of Mark Twain, but with an additional persona beyond that, of the Yankee. Why did he do this? Well, the only reason that makes sense is that he wanted to be sure that the reader could not tell from reading the book what Mark Twain believed or what Samuel Clemens believed as from what the Yankee believed. The Yankee criticizes uh, the society of the uh, 6th century, not realizing that he's also criticizing his own century and himself until the very end when he says, I'm an ass, I'm a donkey. He is criticizing the way people live in his own time in the 19th century. Samuel Clemens didn't want it brought back to him that he had been so uh, daring in, in a criticism of society that, after all, he was a part of and trying to rise high in and had risen high in. So how does he handle it? Well, he makes sure that you can never be certain as to uh, as who is saying what, who really believes what. Is it just a, uh, a dream of the Yankee? Well, let's go one step further. The day, the dawn was come when I laid the manuscript aside. This is now Mark Twain writing, I. The rain had almost ceased. The world was gray and sad. The exhausted storm was sighing and sobbing itself to rest. I went to the stranger's room and listened at his door, which was slightly ajar. I could hear his voice, so I knocked. There was no answer, but I still heard the voice. I peeped in. The man lay on his back in bed, talking brokenly but with spirit and punctuating with his arms, which he thrashed about relentlessly, as sick people do in delirium. I slipped in softly and bent over him. His mutterings and ejaculations went on. I spoke, merely a word to call his attention. His glassy eyes and his ashy face were alight in an instant with pleasure, gratitude, gladness, and welcome. Oh, Sandy, you have come at last. How I've longed for you. Sit by me. Don't leave me. Never leave me again, Sandy. Never again. Where's your hand? Give it to me, dear. Let me hold it. There. And now all is well. All is peace. I'm happy again. We are happy again. Isn't it so, Sandy? You're so dim, so vague. You're but a mist, a cloud, but you're here. That's blessed and sufficient. I have your hand. Don't take it away. It's only for a little while. I shall not require it long. Was that the child? Hello, Central? <laughs> she doesn't answer. Asleep, perhaps. Bring her when she wakes and let me touch her hands and her face and her hair and tell her goodbye. Sandy, yes, you're there. I lost myself a moment and I thought you were gone. Have I been sick so long? It must be so. It seems months to me. And such dreams, such strange and awful dreams, Sandy. Dreams that were as real as reality. Delirium, of course, but so real. Why, I thought the king was dead. I thought you were in Gaul and couldn't get home. 
I thought there was a revolution in the fantastic frenzy of these dreams. I thought Clarence and I and a handful of my cadets fought and exterminated the whole chivalry of England. But even that was not the strangest. I seemed to be a creature out of a remote, unborn age, centuries hence, and even that was as real as the rest. Yes, I seemed to have flown back out of that age again into this of ours, and then forward again, and then set down a stranger in forlorn, and that strange England with an abyss of 13 centuries, yawning between me and you, between me and my home and my friends, between me and all that is dear to me, all that could make life worth the living. It was awful, awfuler than you can ever imagine, Sandy. Ah, uh, watch by me, Sandy. Stay by me every moment. Don't let me go out of my mind again. Death is nothing. Let it come, but... Not with these dreams, not with the torture, those hideous dreams. I can't endure that again. Sandy? He lay muttering incoherently for some little time. And then for a time he lay silent and apparently sinking away towards death. Presently his fingers began to pick busily at the coverlet, and by that sign I knew that his end was at hand. With the first suggestion of the death rattle in his throat, he started up slightly and seemed to listen, and then he said, A bugle? It's the king! The drawbridge there. Man the battlements. Turn out the... He was getting up his last effect, but he never finished it. Mm -hmm. End of book. All right. What's the state of the, the stranger at the end? He is so disoriented, so confused, that he cannot tell reality from dream. He cannot tell that he is a preacher of the 19th century, and it was the 6th century that was the dream. To him, it seems that the 6th century is real, and it's the 19th century that's the horrible dream. Now, this is something Mark Twain wrote about and played with through his whole career from the adventures of Tom Sawyer on. The question of what is reality, and is there any way of knowing what's reality, what is true? And at the very end of his life, in The Mysterious Stranger, which he wrote uh, in three disconnected manuscripts before he died, and was put together by Albert Bigelow Payne, his literary executor, in 1916, and published as a book, The Mysterious Stranger, he claims, his philosophy is, that there is no reality. Everything is a dream. We can't distinguish dream from reality, because there is no reality. And that's a state to which he was driven by his horrible ghost feelings. If there is no reality, and if there is no responsibility, then there's no reason to have guilt. And that's the philosophy that Mark Twain came to at the end of his life, or Samuel Clemens, if you like. In a, in a way, this postscript describes, before it happened, what the, the scenario that Mark Twain himself, Samuel Clemens himself, would live out some 20, 20 years later, dying in a state in which he denied any reality. He's like the Yankee. He can't tell the real from the, from the, uh, the fictional, from the, from the unreal. Um, we call this schizophrenia today, inability to see the difference between fantasy and reality. But uh, Twain saw it in the 19th century. Long before. Was he, when he died, did he have dementia then, you're saying? Well, I don't know that he had dementia, but his philosophy, the, the, the uh, way he talked about life, uh, the way he believed about life, appears to have been 
that there is no reality. You know, what we think is reality may not be reality. We don't know that there's any reality. It may all be a dream. And the theory of the uh, thinking of dreams, uh, the, the subject of dreams, uh, penetrates this whole book. Um, it starts with a dream, remember. Uh, right. Is, is the whole thing the Yankees' dream, or is the whole story a dream by Mark Twain falling asleep in the inn uh, with a couple of four scotches and, Ma and Mallory's book? Is it Mark Twain's dream, or is it Samuel Clemens creating the dream? There are levels, and you can't ever tell who is saying what or who believes what. That's one of the things that makes this novel so complicated and so difficult to understand. It's a great book. It's a terribly flawed book. It's difficult to read. It is, it'll horrify you in places. Uh, in other places, it's hilarious. It's it's preachy in some places. And But ultimately, the what you're left with is a feeling of terror. And I think that's what he felt. I think that what happened in this book is that Mark Twain took the final step uh, in his emerging philosophy that there is no way of knowing reality from fantasy. There is no way of knowing good from evil. There is no way of knowing truth from falsehood. All behavior is random. Uh, in, in Connecticut Yankee, he went one step further than Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn does good while thinking he's doing evil. Yep. The Connecticut Yankee, on the other hand, does evil when thinking he's doing good. The two books are mirror images. Structurally, they're similar, but uh, because he didn't re rewrite the Yankee, didn't spend a year rewriting it and tightening it, it's, it's lopsided and it's out of, out of uh, focus. But uh, The Connecticut Yankee is a powerful book, dangerously powerful. Charles Snyder used the word subversive. I'm talking about this book. Uh, and what he meant, I think, was in the context of the 19th century, what Mark Twain was saying was totally subversive against yeah. all the thinking of that time. You know, the 19th century, the late 19th century, was known for its optimism, for thinking of it, uh, technology will solve all of our problems. It's only a matter of time until we have a perfect society. And yet Mark Twain saw that, number one, they didn't have a perfect society then, and they weren't going to have it. What they were going to have was a society that destroys itself with technology because it can't improve on its own morality. Go, go ahead, I was just going to say, it seems like an anti-war book, or it could be perceived like that by a lot of people who dislike uh, such things as anti-war no. books or anti-war speech. But it, it, it's actually not an anti-war book. It's an anti-human failure. The nature, book. the way we are. Yeah. We yeah. fight. Uh, uh, at the very bottom, what's the subject of both Huckleberry Finn and this book and practically everything Mark Twain wrote? The subject ultimately is the one animal in the world who blushes or has any reason to, man. Man. Man is capable of the greatest good and the greatest evil, and sometimes at the same time, and sometimes without knowing that what he's doing is going to produce, what he's going to doing is, is what it's going to produce. The Yankee sincerely believes that bringing the 19th century to 6th century England is going to be a great improvement. Yeah, he thinks he's doing good. 
Yeah. And he does some good. But in the long run, the nature of man doesn't change. And what he winds up with is a society that uh, is destroyed uh, by 19th century technology. And, uh, and what does the 19th century technology end up? It's destroyed, too. It ends up with nothing. Dust in the hand. You see why wow. I talk about this book? When I, when I talk yeah, about this book, I, I say how powerful it is, how difficult it is, and how tragic it is, and how horrifying it is. So can you talk about the status of your new book and what's going on? Oh, sure. Uh, the status of the book is this. Um, as of today, the people in Bloomington, Indiana, where the publisher is, are supposed to have finished correcting the galley proofs that I had corrected. Mm -hmm. And the next step is they have to send those back to me, and I have to approve them. And when I do that, then the book can go to press. And it will probably go to press, uh, I would guess, the first week in March or maybe the second week in March. It should be out by the end of March at the latest. And what is the title again, just so we start? The title is Ira Fistel's Mark Twain. Okay, easy enough. And the sub the subtitle is Three Encounters. The book is in three sections, you know, talking about mm -hmm. structure. The first section is the study of his major novels, beginning with the adventures of Tom Sawyer and taking up uh, Puddinhead Wilson, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Life on the Mississippi, Connecticut Yankee, uh, Prince and the Pauper, mm -hmm. except I didn't really talk much about the, the, about. Um, What's his name? The, the Mysterious Stranger, because it isn't really a Mark Twain novel. It was culled together from manuscripts that he left when he died. But he didn't actually write it himself. And then what's the next section, may I ask, of the book? The second section is uh, a series of short essays in which I trailed Samuel Clemens' Mark Twain around the country from where he began in Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, then I described his, uh, the uh, Comstock Load, Virginia City, Mm -hmm. where he lived and worked for a year and a half, two, two years actually, as a uh, reporter, and uh, where he first began to use the name Mark Twain as a, as a um, pseudonym, or as a uh, pet name. And then San Francisco and uh, California, uh, Angels Camp, California, where he wrote, uh, didn't write, but heard the um, story of the jumping frog, which was the first thing he wrote and published, and made him famous. And then from there, uh, back to Hartford, Connecticut, where he lived from 1870, uh, really from 1878 to uh, 1892, for approximately 22 years, maybe uh, about, lived in Hartford. And then uh, after that, I followed him to Elmira, New York, which is where he spent most of his summers with his family, where he wrote most of his work, and where he died, uh, is not died, but where he's buried. He's buried in Hartford. What about Europe? Uh, Elmira. What about well, Europe? I didn't, go to, I didn't follow him to Europe, no. Okay. <laughs> but I've been to Europe, too. Uh, you know, I've been to Vienna, where he lived for a while. Uh -huh. He lived in England for a while. Uh, he lived in Paris for a while. Um, he spoke German. He was, he was fluent in German. Right. And lived in uh, Austrian Germany for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I... The reason why I did that was two things. One, because I believe in atmosphere. Uh, I, I can feel, for example, if I'm in Virginia City and I'm walking up those streets that are exactly the same as they were in 1862 when he was there, 
going up the mountain on these streets. Oh. Uh, he describes Wonderful. how he panted his way up the mountain. Well, that's exactly what you do. Um, and some of the buildings are the same. The, the vistas are absolutely the same from Virginia City. And that was one reason, to get a feel for what he felt. The other reason was to, to examine how his environment impacted his writing. And indeed, he was a very different writer in uh, Connecticut than he was when he was living in, uh, in California and Nevada. He changed over the course of his life, changed dramatically. The third section of the book is the really controversial part. Uh, based on his writing, based on his novels, and I have a, uh, a quotation at the beginning of the book from V.S. Naipaul, the Hindu writer, who says, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, autobiography may distort. Facts can be rearranged or things can be forgotten. But uh, fiction never lies. It reveals the author completely. And that's the approach I took to Mark Twain's fiction. If, if through his fiction, you, I tried to understand who, who he was and what he was. And I came to the conclusion in the last part that the driving force in his personality, especially after 50 years old, was terrifying guilt. He felt horrible guilt. And he says in the autobiography some of the things he felt guilty about. Well, the catch to that is, he said it in his autobiography, but he didn't feel it when they actually happened. He, <laughs> assumed, he says that I killed my, my baby son by letting him get too cold and, he, and catch a chill and died. Well, the baby died of diphtheria, had nothing to do with cold. And he had nothing to do with killing, with, you know, killing the baby, as he said he did. And he had no reason to feel guilty for it. And, in fact, he didn't feel guilty for it at the time the baby died. But 30 years later, 40 years later in the autobiography, he says how guilty he is about it. And he says he's guilty for making his family paupers and exiles, quote, unquote. Well, he did, they were self-exiled only because uh, they could live more cheaply in Europe, but they were never paupers or anything close to paupers. And they were not exiles in the sense that uh, they were forced to be exiles. Uh, he, did, he wasn't totally responsible for it. He was partly responsible for losing a, a lot of the money the family had by his foolishness in business. But he also made tons of money, and they lived very well for a long time. And he wound up a rich man at his death. So what is he really feeling guilty about? Is he, the things he says he's feeling guilty about are not rational. Okay. Uh, I think that he had four major areas that he felt guilty about or may have felt guilty about. I can't prove it, of course. But one of those was his relationship with Henry Huddleston Rogers. Rogers was, uh, I think I may have told you, a uh, lieutenant of John D. Rockefeller in the Standard Oil Company. And he had a terrible business reputation. He was known on Wall Street by his initials, H.H. H. Rogers, as Hellhound Rogers. <laughs> uh, he was a totally nasty businessman, cynical and uh, untrustworthy and grasping. But Rogers liked Clemens' work, liked Twain's work. And he came to Clemens' aid when Clemens was in financial distress. And he arranged the bankruptcy um, when Samuel Clemens went bankrupt at the age of 59. 
it was with the advice and help of Henry Rogers. And Rogers saw to it that Livy Clemens, Samuel Clemens' wife, was named the first creditor ahead of all the others and got mm. to keep the Mark Twain copyrights and their home in Hartford. And then he arranged to negotiate with the creditors. Uh, they were owed $125,000 unsecured. And Rogers, that was a big sum of the course in 1890, and Rogers arranged for them to settle at 50 cents on the dollar. And then he sent Mark Twain on a round-the-world lecture tour to be followed by a travel book about the tour. And the book and the lectures made so much money that they were able to pay back the creditors 100 cents on the dollar and have something left over for, for the family. Now, Mark Twain uh, was the premier social critic in America by far. And yet, as Samuel Clemens, he thought Henry Rogers was God. And he would never do anything to write or, or publish anything critical of Standard Oil or John D. Rockefeller mm. or Henry Rogers. Uh -huh. uh, in other words, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't have put it this way, but he sold out. Yeah. He sold out his freedom of judgment and freedom to write. And the proof of the pudding came when uh, Clemens had a publishing company. And the publishing company was failing, one of the reasons for the bankruptcy. And Henry Damaris Lloyd, whose name you may not recognize, but he wrote yeah. Lloyd, the tremendous right. exposure of the Standard Oil Company called Wealth mm -hmm. Against the Commonwealth. Lloyd came to Clemens and said, will you publish my book? I appreciate what you did for Ulysses Grant and uh, the, the, what a great publishing success it was. I had this wonderful book. Will you publish it? And Clemens turned it down because he would not publish anything mm -hmm. that was critical of Standard Oil or Rockefeller or Rogers. Hmm. So that's the sellout. That's one thing. Yeah. Another thing was his relationship with his wife. Lily Clemens was a semi-invalid, not particularly beautiful, not particularly well-educated, and I doubt that she ever really understood Samuel Clemens. I don't think he ever revealed himself totally to her. Uh, she manipulated him with her constant illnesses, but he manipulated her. Uh, by giving her things to read and write uh, and to cross out, you know, as if I'm submitting my uh, manuscripts to you. Well, <laughs> he submitted them all right, but he didn't pay any attention to anything. The only way, the way he used her was she was so typical of the people who bought books, uh, bought his books, that he used her, I think, as a guinea pig to see what he could get away with in the books and what he would have to rewrite. But he marry her for her money? Did uh, he pursue well, that's her? That's a good or... question that nobody can answer. Okay. Uh, however, in this book, you know, look at chapter 41, I think it is, or chapter 40, where he describes his relationship with Sandy. I think it's in 40, mm. beginning of 41, where the Yankee describes his, his relationship with Sandy. Uh, let me read a few words of this because it, uh, it's so telling. Ah, Sandy, what a right good heart she had, how simple and genuine and how good she was. She was a flawless wife and mother, and yet I had married her for no particular reason, except that by the customs of chivalry she was my property until some knight should win her from me in the field. She had hunted me out, found me in London, and straightway resumed her old place at my side in the placidest way and as of right. I was at a... And in my opinion, this sort of partnership would compromise her sooner or later. She couldn't see how, but I cut the argument short and we had a wedding. Now, I didn't know I was drawing a prize, 
and yet that was exactly what I did draw. Within a year, I became her worshiper, and ours was the dearest and perfectest comradeship that ever was. All right. Did he fall in love with Lily Clemens, or did he fall in love with the idea of marrying an heiress? And he did love her. There's no question that he loved her. But the question is, did he marry her for more than love, or did he come to love her after the marriage uh, was his eye on the, on the fortune and on the status of her family? Now, she was getting close to being an old maid. She was 25 years old. And in 1870, if you weren't married by 25, you had very little chance of getting married. Her family was totally against his marrying her. And uh, his father, her father, uh, I think I told this story, her father asked him for references. And when the, Clement says, I'll write to my friends in California. And when he came back to his father-in-law six or eight weeks later, he says, well, what do you say, Dad? And uh, her father looked at him and says, Clemens, haven't you got a friend in the world? All your friends say you're a drunken bum. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. But because his daughter was nearly a, uh, an old maid, and because she had fallen in love with Clemens, the father said, take her anyway. And then he gave him the house and the money to buy the newspaper in Buffalo uh, to mm -hmm. take care of his daughter. And I'm sure Samuel Clemens knew that he would do that. I don't trust yeah. Samuel Clemens in anything. Uh, Mark Twain was was wonderful. Samuel Clemens was not a nice person. That's interesting that you would think that you would spend so much time with him and come away not liking him very much. Oh, I Samuel love Clemens. his Mark Twain side. Yeah, but he was two people. Yeah, and the two people were the two personalities were driven further and further apart the older he got to the point where in the Connecticut Yankee, he is actually criticizing himself. Insofar yeah. as the Yankee is, is in large measure Samuel Clemens, and the, the book is a devastating attack on uh, 19th century America and on the Yankee who represents it. He's yeah. attacking himself. That's and right. yet he did some really good charitable things. He... he um, Mentored yes, Helen Keller. Introduced Helen Keller to Rogers and told Rogers oh. to support her. Oh, and Rogers great. did. That was good. <laughs> really? Yeah. Who was that, the Mark oh, Twain yeah. doing it or Samuel Clemens? <laughs> well, anyway, it was obviously uh, the Mark Twain side of him. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see how much guilt he must have felt over Livy, especially yeah. after she died. Uh, mm -hmm. She died in 1904. And by that time, he had recovered from the bankruptcy. And after she died, he's walking the streets of New York. He's a wealthy man again. Uh, he's drawing adulation from the crowd. And what must he have thought, knowing that perhaps that he had married her for his money, money and got away with it? Here, this has been fascinating. Yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to uh, checking it out. Thanks again. Yeah, the book will be on Amazon. It'll be on Kindle. It'll be on Nook. Uh, it'll okay. be on the, their own website. The publisher's website is Ex Libris. We'll get it. Let's, wait, let me tell you about the tapes, uh, the, our CD, oh, the CDs, the CDs that I made. Tape. Okay. Uh, I made. Oh, excuse me. I have made. Uh, I think it's eleven CDs. Uh, a lot of which is the Mark Twain stuff. Just a second. I got a list of them here. Okay. Already on CD. It's a four volume. Four disc, four disc set on the Civil War, 
Mark Twain in Virginia City, in which I have readings from Roughing It, uh, my analysis of the adventures of Tom Sawyer from the book, my analysis of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn from the book, which is two discs, my adventures, uh, two discs on the uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, uh, Puddinhead Wilson as a mm. disc, um, and altogether there are, I think there are five Mark Twain discs, and readings from uh, Life on the Mississippi as well. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how to go about it. I'll have to arrange to have those things produced. But oh, great. Uh, those will give you what's in the book in uh, on sound, on disc. Wow. Okay. So, I want to be uh, first in line to get those. I really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for the opportunity to do this. Thank I've you. had a wonderful time doing it. This is wonderful. And anytime you, you want to so do much. something again, you know, let me know. I'll do it, and I thank you so much. I, I enjoy I it very much. Yeah. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.